podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 21st of February. Hope you're all well and having yourselves a pleasant day. The sun is out. It's a fairly decent day here. Can't argue with it. We had a game of football last night in the Premier League and Manchester City beat Brentford by one goal to nil. Erling Haaland scoring in the 71st minute largely as a result of Christopher Ayer falling over. And then, rather than getting up and trying to make a challenge, appearing to try and toboggan himself across the ground, as if he was maybe going to try and head the ball from Haaland's path. I don't really know what he was doing. But Haaland ran on 1v1 versus Mark Fleck and squared him up and passed it into the bottom corner. City were good value for their win, 70% of the ball, 25 shots, 11 on target. 
Brentford did have some opportunities, though. Uh, in particular, Frank Onyeka, who broke through in the first half down the left, got 1v1 with the goalkeeper and then really weak shot. Uh, Ivan Tony had a free kick that sailed just over. Onyeka had another half chance. There were some moments in the game for Brentford, but there's no question City were the better team. They did struggle, though, to connect the dots because without KDB in the team, everything seemed to fall to Rodri to be the most important player in possession. And Rodri's great on the ball, but he's not a creative player. They had another city had a great opportunity in the first half when Kyle Walker got onto the end of a clipped cross, headed it back across goal, and Bernardo Silva, dead in front of goal, got his angles wrong and headed it wide. That was from a Rodri clip ball. And he had a couple more in the game. John Stones had one good one in the game as well. But City felt inevitable last night. Even though they were struggling to break down Brentford's defence, and Brentford, to their credit, defended much better in this game than they had against Liverpool at the weekend. Notable that they made three changes, uh, bringing in Johan Wissa for Neil Mopé up front to give them more pace on the counter, bringing in Frank Onyeka for Matthias Jensen to make them more compact and solid and grafting in midfield, and then bringing in Zanka for Nathan Collins, who, to be fair, had a stinker at the weekend. Um, Brentford did defend better, and they were able to be more resilient, more resolute, but ultimately City's pressure told, and City jump above Arsenal now into second. So we've got Liverpool top on 57 points. We've got Manchester City second on 56, and Arsenal third on 55 The goal difference is quite tight. Liverpool are plus 35, City plus 32, Arsenal plus 36. Liverpool have scored the most goals. City have conceded the least goals. It's shaping up really well. It is shaping up really well between these three teams as we head into the last stretch of the season. As I always say, the title race begins with 10 games to go. So each team has each team has three games to go before we hit the title race. For Liverpool, those league matches are Luton Town, that's tonight, Nottingham Forest, and Manchester City at home. Liverpool will want to take seven points, and my prediction is they take seven points from those games. For City, it's Bournemouth away, Manchester United at home. Liverpool away, and again, I think seven points there. Then for Arsenal, you're looking at a situation where they have Newcastle home, Sheffield United away, Brentford home. And I think I think Arsenal will take nine points from those games. So I think when we hit the 10 games to go, Mark, Liverpool and Arsenal will be neck and neck on points. And it will depend on goal difference as to who's top. And City will be third. But I think, and I could be wrong, I think 
Arsenal have by far the hardest last 10 games. Chelsea home, City away, Luton home, Brighton away, Villa home, Wolves away, Tottenham away, Bournemouth home, United away, Everton home. And I think they're going to drop points in... I have them dropping points in five games. Potentially more. Potentially more. It would be no surprise if Chelsea went there and got a draw. It really wouldn't. I think they'll lose at City. I could see a draw at Brighton. I could see a draw home to Villa. I could see them dropping points at Wolves. I think they'll lose at Tottenham. And I think they'll drop points at Manchester United. So City, Spurs and United, I think, will all take points from them. And between Chelsea, Brighton, Villa and Wolves, I think they'll drop points in at least two of those. For City, Brighton away, potential to drop points there. Arsenal home, I think they'll win. Villa home, I do think they win. Palace home, they'll win. Palace away, they'll win. Uh, Luton home, they'll win. I think they drop points at Tottenham. They beat Forest. They'll beat Wolves at home. They'll beat Fulham away. They'll beat West Ham. But I think they drop points at Spurs and in one other game. And then Liverpool, well, they have the easiest last 10 of this group. Everton away, they should win. Brighton home, they should win. Sheffield United home, they should win. United away will be tough. I could see them drawing there. Palace home, they'll win. Fulham away, they should win. West Ham away, they should win. I think they'll beat Spurs at home. Villa away will be tough, and I could see them dropping points there. And then Wolves home final day. Now, the issue for Liverpool is that they're currently decimated with injuries. Now, every club has injuries. Let's be clear on that. Every club has injuries. But when we look at the top three, Arsenal, Jurian Timber, is he a starter? We don't know because he got hurt in the first game of the season. But he's a starter in a position where Arsenal have Ben White, Tommy Asu and Zinchenko, right back or left back. Last season, Arsenal fans had us believe that Ben White was the best right back in the league. And let's not forget he cost 50 million and that Zinchenko was the best left back in the league. And let's not forget that he cost between 30 and 35. So they do have cover in those positions that they have told us are players of a very high level. Gabriel Jesus is currently out. That's a big blow. He is a starter without question. Fabio Vieira is not a starter and never has been. Thomas Partey 
currently out. He's been out most of the season. He's not a starter. Declan Rice was signed to replace Thomas Partey. And Arsenal fans have told us all season long that Declan Rice is the best number six in the world. So therefore, Thomas Partey cannot be better than him and cannot be the starter. So you cannot be missing a player if the guy you have in that position is, according to you, the best in the world. Now, Zinchenko and Tomiyasu are both out at the moment. They're short-term injuries. They'll both be back in the next little while. But it does give them a lack of depth at the moment, especially with Timber gone. So they're starting White and Jakob Kivor. I feel right now an injury in that defense would cause them significant problems. Significant problems. You'd also look at their attack and say, if Saka or Martinelli were to be out for a while, they would be in a bit of bother because they don't really have... I mean, Trossard has been needed as the nine. You could shift Trossard wide and play Eddie and Ketty through the middle, but that's, that's not the same level. But Arsenal have had the best luck with injuries all season. City, only the two players out at the moment, Gvardiol and Grealish. Gvardiol has started most of the year, but you've got Nathan Aki, who was the best left back in the league last year, along with a stupid <clears throat> So are you really losing out on anything there? And Jack Grealish hasn't been a starter most of the season. So squad players. Expensive squad players, but squad players. Liverpool, on the other hand, no Matip. Now, he's a backup centre-back when everybody's fit, but it knocks away at their depth. Diogo Jota is the starting left winger. Alison Becker is the starting goalkeeper. Trent is the starting right back. Zaboslai is the starting midfielder. Darwin is the starting number nine. Salah is the starting right winger. Alcantara has missed all season. But I wouldn't class him as a starter. Jones is out. He is a starting midfielder. And Besetic has been out most of the season. Liverpool have had the worst injury record of the top three all season long. They've also played the hardest schedule of the top three this season so far. Hence, they have the easiest, quote-unquote, easiest um, run-in. But... Right now, they're missing five starters. Jones, Nunes, Zaboslai, Alexander-Arnold, Becker, and Jota. And Nunes and Salah are absent tonight, apparently. That's seven starters. But five of them are going to be out for a while. Zaboslai is the one who's apparently the closest to coming back. But all the rest of them are most likely out until, at the earliest for Trent, it looks like City. But the rest of them are well beyond that. That's where Liverpool might trip up. They are short of numbers. Now, Liverpool are favoured in the fact that they've got Europa League. So they can rest and rotate in the Europa League. Arsenal and City have Champions League and will have to go as strong as possible in those games. So we wait and see whether Liverpool could potentially just try and bin off the Europa League. 
that might be an option for them. Both Liverpool and City are still in the FA Cup. Arsenal obviously were knocked out by Liverpool. But that's extra games on top as well. And I do wonder if Liverpool might take a look at that Southampton game and go, you know what? Let's just bin this off. Especially if they were to beat Chelsea in the EFL Cup final, which is coming up. Which is another competition in which they've played considerably more games than the other two. Liverpool have played an awful lot of games this year already and potentially have as many as 25 left this season. That's a lot of games between now and the end of the year. They've already played 38 games and could play 63 if they go to the final of both the EFL or the FA Cup and the Europa League. Arsenal, on the other hand, they have played 35 games. They have 13 games left in the league and potentially seven in the Champions League if they were to get to the final. So 20 games. So Arsenal's max is eight less than Liverpool. Manchester City. And does that include... That includes the Community Shield, which is a pre-season friendly. So we're not going to count that. They've played 34 games and have a maximum of 20 left. So they've played four games less than Liverpool and have, if both sides max out, five games less to come. That would be nine games across the course of the season, which is a lot. City have played, we take out the Community Shield, which is a friendly. They've played 38 games, same as Liverpool. Now, three of their their games were the uh, UEFA Super Cup and the Club World Cup, which, let's be fair, not of the same standard. But they've played 38 games. Their max left is 24. So, again, like with Liverpool, a lot of football to come. But they don't have the injury issues that Liverpool have. It's as simple as that. They just don't. So that favours Arsenal heavily. Because if you're looking at it as a neutral, you would expect Arsenal to beat Porto but then it gets a little bit dicey in the quarterfinals for them because they've got no track record recently in the Champions League. And if they were to get a really tough draw, you wouldn't be surprised if they went out in the last eight. City, on the other hand, are the reigning holders and are expected to get to the final this year again. So again for Arsenal... That could be a thing where you knock another three games off their max for the year. And again, that favours them. Now, like I said, they have the toughest running because they've played the easiest schedule to now. But it is shaping up to be very, very interesting. My prediction is that City will win the league. 
But that is me maybe trying to reverse jinx my way to the Premier League title for Liverpool. When I actually sat down and went over the fixtures, I came out with Liverpool finishing one point ahead of City. Liverpool with 90, City with 89. I think I had Arsenal on like 82. Because I do think Arsenal's running is very, very tough. If Arsenal were to win the league from here, it would be, they would need, they would need some outstanding performances. Away to City, away to Spurs, away to United. They're really tough games. Away to Brighton, away to Wolves. Again, they're just really tough. And they've got Chelsea to come to the Emirates. It's just a really tough run in for the Gunners. Just is. And we've seen in the last two seasons that when it gets to the final 10 games, that Arsenal tend to shrink a little bit. If we take a step back to last season, if we look at the Premier League, your last 10 games, you beat Leeds, then you went four straight without a win. Draw with Liverpool, draw with West Ham, draw with Southampton at home. A Southampton team that got relegated, got thumped at the Etihad, beat Chelsea, beat Newcastle, got beaten heavily at home by Brighton, got beaten at the city ground by a Forest team that were, at that point, not safe from relegation. Then they hammered Wolves on the final day of the season. But you're talking about last 10 games... Four wins, three draws. 15 out of 30. That's not good. That's not good at all. Like, let's not forget, they were comfortably ahead in the Premier League going in to the last 10 games. Comfortably ahead. And couldn't find a way to get the job done. It is one of the more notable choke jobs in in recent Premier League history. City, in their last 10 games last season, hammered Liverpool, hammered Southampton, beat Leicester comfortably, hammered Arsenal, beat Fulham, hammered West Ham, beat Leeds, hammered Everton, Beat Chelsea. Drew at Brentford. Uh, drew at Brighton, lost to Brentford. The title was over before those two games. And they were able to rest loads of players. That's how you go about it in your last 10 games. Go in, you win eight, you draw one. They took 10 points more than City, or than, than Arsenal in a 10-game a, a stretch. 10 points more in a 10-game stretch. And that was easing up because they could easily have gone to Brighton, gone to Brentford, full strength, and won both games. Easily. The season before, again, take a look at Arsenal. 
Last 10 games. Lost to Crystal Palace. Lost to Brighton. Lost to Southampton. Beat Chelsea away. Beat United at home. Beat West Ham away. Beat Leeds at home. Lost to Spurs. Lost at Newcastle. Beat Everton at home. Five wins, five defeats. 15 points. They went into the last 10 games in a very strong position to take a top four finish. In fact, with two games to go, or sorry, three games to go, they basically had it locked up. Antonio Conte, you'll remember, had taken over at Spurs. They looked a bit of a lost cause when he took over from Nuno Espirito Santo. And yet he was able to dig out a top four finish. Spurs in those last 10 games, just for for the, the record of it, beat West Ham, beat Newcastle, beat Villa, lost to Brighton, drew at Brentford, beat Leicester, drew at Liverpool, beat Arsenal, beat Burnley, and beat Norwich. Seven wins, two draws, one defeat. They took eight points more than Arsenal and finished two points above them. They were six points behind Arsenal with 10 games to go. City were five points behind behind Arsenal with 10 games to go. Won the league by five points. And like I said, that was easing up at the end. Could easily have won the league by 10 points. Arsenal have not handled the pressure of seasons under Mikel Arteta. And that's what they have to prove. And until they do that, We don't really have much to trust them for. And yes, their fans will point at heavy wins over bad teams in recent weeks. Yet heavy wins over bad teams at similar points last season, the year before as well. What do you do in the last 10 games, especially this year when you're most likely going to have Champions League, which didn't have last year, remember? City did that while competing in the FA Cup and the Champions League. Arsenal had been dumped out of the Europa League in the round of 16. Until Arsenal prove it, there's no reason to trust them. Last night in the Champions League, PSV Eindhoven won, Dortmund won. Daniel Malen opened the scoring for Dortmund. Luke de Jong equalised in the penalty spot on 56 minutes. Mats Hummels took to Twitter to complain about the awarding of the penalty. And quite frankly, I I think he had a case. It did seem soft to me. In the other game, Inter Milan won Atletico Madrid nil. Marco Arnautovic with the only goal of the game, giving Inter, Inter a slender lead for the second leg, but it is a deserved lead. They did play the better football. They were the better team. But I think Atleti will be quite happy to be going home one nil down. 
Atleti didn't perform last night. It was clear they went there to try and spoil the game and just, you know, try and nab a draw. But I think Atleti will be comfortable enough going home with a 1-0 lead. Now, Inter are not to be overlooked at all. Obviously got to the final last year. They've been really impressive in Serie A. A little bit hit and miss in the Champions League. Three wins, three draws in their group stage. But they've been really impressive in Serie A and are running away with the league title. And obviously, like I say, they got the Champions League final last year, so they will have to be respected. We have two games tonight, Porto versus Arsenal, third in Portugal versus third in the Premier League. You would expect Arsenal to win comfortably, quite frankly. Liverpool have gone there a bunch of times in recent years and won comfortably. I think this is a worse Porto team than the teams Liverpool played. But at the same time, for Arsenal, it's new. It's new territory. This group of players haven't played Champions League knockout before. So maybe there's some nerves. You still expect Arsenal, even if they were to draw or even lose tonight, to get through because they'll have the second leg at home. In the other game tonight, it is Napoli versus Barcelona. Napoli are a train wreck at the moment. They've just appointed their third manager of the season, um, Francesco Calzona. Don't know much about him other than he was uh, Maurizio Sarri's assistant for a number of years. He's the current Slovakian manager and he's had an unusual path into football management. They will be looking at massive changes, a huge overhaul come the summer. Barcelona also looking at big changes come the summer because we know that Xavi is stepping down. Like Napoli, they won their domestic league last year. And this season just hasn't gone well for them. Hasn't gone well at all. They are third, eight points behind Real Madrid. I do wonder if the draw were to break for Napoli and they were to, or for Barcelona, excuse me, for Barcelona, and they were to beat Napoli and advance. And then let's just say in the round of eight, the quarterfinals, they were to draw PSV or Dortmund or potentially Lazio or this out-of-form Bayern team. And they were to advance into the last four. And let's just say they got Arsenal. And they beat them. And they advance to the final. And they've avoided Real. They've avoided PSG. They've avoided City. They've avoided Atleti and Inter. Those sides have had to battle it out. We get to a final. And let's just say it's Manchester City against Barcelona. And let's just say Manchester City just have one of those off days. They didn't play well in the final last year, remember. Let's just say they have one of those off days. And Barca won. Now, I don't think Barcelona are going to win the European Cup. I think they're, at best, fifth or sixth favourite. I would put City, Real, PSG, Arsenal, and Inter or Atleti ahead of them. But let's just say that the draw went their way and they did manage to win. What do they do then? 
surely you just can't let Xavi leave if he's won a league title in the Champions League in back-to-back seasons. Regardless of any other nonsense, surely you have to attempt at least to convince him to stay. These should be good games tonight. Like I said, Arsenal should win comfortably. Uh, Porto are... They're in a weird, weird situation as well because their manager, Sergio Conceição, is leaving at the end of the season. Uh, they come into this game in mixed form domestically. One win, one draw, one defeat in their last three in the Portuguese league. A draw with Rio Ave, who are in the relegation scrap. Uh, a defeat away to Aruca, And then a win over Estrella. Um... Aruka are seventh, but well behind, 20 points behind Porto. They're seven points behind Sporting and Benfica, and Sporting have a game in hand on them and Benfica. So, you know, they're potentially 10 points off the top in Portugal. Sporting's game in hand, if I'm not mistaken, is Familiqueo, which, yeah, which is a very favourable game for them, and one that they should win. Familiar are sitting in eighth at the moment, well off the pace. So they could be 10 points off top domestically. That's a lot in that league. It's a lot in any league, but especially in that league where there are three teams. Well, there's most often two teams, Benfica and Porto, who rise above the rest. Sporting have done an amazing job under Amorim to to join them. But for Porto to be that far off top and that far off second, that's a real down season for them. And with the uncertainty over the manager and, you know, as always with them, there's players there who are playing for moves who won't be there all that long. Like you look at Alan Varela, there's no chance he's going to be there all that long. He's far too good. There's a few others. We know uh, Taremi's leaving at the end of the season. There's a strong likelihood that Nico Gonzalez gets a big move at the end of the season. Pepe potentially could retire at the end of the year. Diogo Costa, the goalkeeper, has been linked with a bunch of moves away. You know, there's, there's a real chance that a lot of this squad gets broken up come the summer. And that does create an odd feeling in the squad. So it's an opportunity for Arsenal to go there, take advantage of that, win the game comfortably and get themselves ready for the last eight. I'm going to pick Arsenal to win. And in the other one, I think I'll go the draw. I think I'll go the draw between Napoli and Barca. I think Barca will advance through the second leg. Right, folks, we'll take a break. Back after this. Right, welcome back. So, uh, it is Wednesday, so it is Nostalgia Day, and I had a couple of ideas for what I was going to do. Number one, I was going to talk about Wimbledon, but I feel like that needs maybe a whole pod. And then I was going to talk about Zidane, because I just love Zizou, and I keep seeing stupid people that didn't see him play claim that he wasn't an all-time great. Uh, Led by... Michael Cox, who I just can't abide personally. Um, But, (laughs) but, Sunderland sacked Michael Beale. 
And there's a whole load of shenanigans now coming out about Michael Beale and whether or not he had a burner account on Twitter, which he used to basically tweet propaganda about himself. And it does look very much like that is the case, that that is what he was doing. Now, he has denied it, but it very much looks like it was. That account was definitely him. It was his podcast originally uh, that was the, the purpose of the account. There are multiple tweets where people have, when the account first launched, uh, tweeted saying, you know, follow this account. It's Michael Beale, yada, yada. He has his own personal account, but this was a secondary account. And someone has found a screenshot of the original bio of the Twitter account, which I believe is called Player ID or Talent ID. And it says that it is by Michael Beale. So that account is now gone from Twitter, but it does look like Michael Beale uh, was tweeting about himself from a different account and making excuses for his own behavior and his own failures. And he has been sacked. And that's the second time he's been sacked in, well, in the last year or so. Uh, he was sacked by Rangers, obviously, now sacked by Sunderland. He's been a manager for less than two years. He's been through three jobs and none of them have ended well. QPR, he took over, started well, got his head turned a little bit by Wolves, then announced he was staying, made a whole point of talking about loyalty. And then a month later, bounced to Rangers, where he lasted, what, a year? Was it a year he lasted at Rangers? And he was then sacked by them. And now at Sunderland, he's lasted 12 games. Um, Not even a year. He was appointed end of November 2022 and sacked 1st of October 2023. So you're basically looking at 10 months in the job, 43 games. Now, he won 72%, but that's not good enough at Rangers. It's only two years. Well, it's not even two years. It'll be two years come June from when he started his managerial career out on his own. But to have already gone through three jobs, to have been sacked twice, and the way he left QPR, it's probably done his reputation a little bit of damage. And if I was advising him, I would say to him, do one of two things. Leave England, go to Europe, and get a job there out of the spotlight and try and rebuild or or find a top manager who's looking for an assistant because we know Michael Beale is a great assistant manager. He's proven that. Go and learn from another manager who's not Steven Gerrard, who you were teaching. Go and learn from someone experienced, preferably someone with strong man management skills, because that appears to be the area that lets Beal down, man management and motivation. He's clearly a very good tactician. He's clearly good on the training ground, but he doesn't seem to connect with his players. That's been the preeminent word coming out of Sunderland. It's what came out of Rangers. He doesn't connect with players. He doesn't have those personal relationships. Now, you don't need to be best friends with them, but you've got to be able to connect with them on some level. 
go and do that for a couple of years. And then, especially if that manager has success, then you'll be in a stronger position to find another job when you want to take another crack at this. He's still a young man. He's 43 years of age. So he'll get more opportunities one way or another. But if he wants to maximize the talent that he has, and he is a very talented coach, I think his best bet would be to find a manager who'd be willing to take him under his wing, willing to, you know, to let him grow and develop, willing to let him handle some of the tactical side and work from there. Anyway, Sunderland. I thought we'd take a look at Sunderland, the Premier League years. Because of the Michael Beale stuff, they're in the news. The third season of Sunderland Till I Die was also on recently on Netflix. It's not as good as the first couple of seasons. It's not as long as any three episodes. There's not as much sort of behind the scenes shenanigans in the boardroom type of stuff. Quite clear that the current owner and the people running the club weren't as willing to give the type of access that were had in the first two seasons, which is kind of understandable because everybody came out looking like a terrible gang of lads. But let's have a look at their Premier League years. So they spent quite a long time in the lower leagues, having been relegated from the top flight in 1985. They spent a decade in the lower leagues, at one point dropping into the third division, which is now what we know as League One. But in 95-96, they win what we now call the championship under Peter Reid, and they come up. And they buy Alex Ray, Tony Cotton, Darren Williams, Jan Eriksson, the legend that is Chris Waddle, and also Niall Quinn, who would genuinely have a fantastic run at Sunderland over a six-year span. He was 30 when he joined Sunderland from City, where he'd been for six years, having come through the academy at Arsenal. But he went north to join Sunderland, and unfortunately for them, it was not to be a long stay in the division. That year, they finished 18th in the Premier League, one spot ahead of Middlesbrough, two ahead of Forest. They were the three teams that went down. Coventry and Southampton survived by one point. That was a day where the season went to the final day for the relegation spots with a lot of clubs potentially going down. Blackburn Rovers, not long removed from winning the title, finished 13th on 42 points. West Ham, 42 points. Everton, 42 points. Southampton and Coventry, 41 points each. Sunderland, 40. Borough, 39. Forest, 34. Now, you note, there's always been this thing of 40 points is the safe mark. You get to 40 points, you stay up. And that is true, generally speaking. In most seasons, you don't even need 40. In a lot of seasons, Middlesbrough's 39 points 
would have kept them up. Now, remember, Borough that season got to both cup finals and lost and actually would have stayed up, but they were docked three points because they had an illness outbreak in the squad and didn't fulfill a fixture against Blackburn just before Christmas. Had Borough done the smart thing and just sent the reserves down and the kids, even if they got pumped, they would have stayed up. They would have finished on 42 points and stayed up in 15th, ahead of Everton. Coventry would have gone down. But to get 40 points and go back down, very unfortunate. So 97-98, Sunderland back into the championship. They finish third. They get to the playoff final and they lose. Charlton Athletic are promoted. 98-99, they win the championship again. Peter Reid is still the manager. They take 105 points. 31 wins, 12 draws, only three defeats. And a striker called Kevin Phillips scores 23 goals. And up they come into the Premier League. They go shopping, this time with a bigger budget. They bring in Steve Bold, Arsenal legend. Thomas Helmer, one of the great defenders of of the 80s and 90s. Now, unfortunately, he didn't settle at all. His injuries had just racked up and his legs were basically gone. And during his one season contracted to Sunderland, he was loaned to Hertha Berlin and basically couldn't play anymore. <clears throat> um, but anyway, they also signed Stefan Schwartz, former Arsenal midfielder, very, very talented player. He played for Fiorentina and Benfica. At this point, he was 29, maybe pushing 30, getting towards the end of his career, but Still a good player. They signed John Oster from Everton. They signed Kevin Kilban from West Brom, who would go on and have uh, quite a good career for Sunderland, playing there for four years before moving to Everton uh, at a profit. Um, That year, they finished seventh in the Premier League. They began the season in unbelievable form. Ten games in, they were second. 18 games in, they were third. 19 games in, they were third. 21 games in, they were fo- they were fourth. But a run where they lost six and drew five of an 11-game stretch dropped them from fourth to eighth. They managed to rectify things. They won four of their last eight games and a draw. And they finished in seventh, which for a newly promoted team, was an immense achievement. And that seventh could very easily have been sixth. Villa had the same number of points as them, but finished above them on goal difference. They were seven points behind Chelsea who finished fifth, and they were never catching them. But still, level and points with Villa, only missing out on what would have been the Intertoto Cup by goal difference. A tremendous season. Kevin Phillips was 
absolutely unbelievable. But there's some other good players in this group that I want to highlight. Thomas Sorensen, an ever-reliable goalkeeper, played five years at Sunderland to join them in the championship, played 171 league matches for them before moving on to Villa, would then play for Stoke before finishing his career with Melbourne City. He played 101 times for the Danish national team. Broke into the national team when he was making his name at Sunderland. He was outstanding for Sunderland and outstanding for Denmark for a long, long time. Michael Gray, a left winger slash left back, good on the ball, get great getting forward, good pace, good cross through the ball. Took one of the worst penalties I've ever seen the year before they came up when they lost that playoff final to Charlton on penalties. It was his penalty that missed. But he was an excellent player for Sunderland. Spent 12 years there having come through their academy, having not made the grade at United and been released 16. He played 363 league games, well over 400 games in all competitions for them. Gave them all his best years, left at 30 and kind of had a bit of a journeyman run thereafter. Didn't really hit the same heights anywhere. Um, But a very, very good player on the left-hand side for Sunderland. Kevin Kilban ahead of him. That was a really good, really, really good connection down that side. On the right wing, you had Nicky Summerby. Son of the great Mike Summerby, Manchester City legend. He'd come through the Swindon Academy, helped Swindon get promoted, done well there, moved on to City, and then he joined Sunderland. And for four years, he was a very, very valuable player for Sunderland. Injuries started to take their toll. He leave at the age of 30. And again, like Michael Gray, had a bit of a journeyman run. Though he did do quite well when he went to Bradford. Um, a couple of years later. Always liked Nicky Summerby, just a hard-working grafter down the right-hand side who was very, very similar to his dad. Very, very similar to his dad. He was a third-generation player. His grandfather, George Summerby, was also a professional player didn't reach the heights that his son and grandson got to, but it's still quite cool to have three generations that did so well. Always like Nicky Summerby. Also in that squad, you had Danny Dicchio, who best known probably for a spell at QPR, but would go and play for Sampdoria for a brief spell. Didn't really work out. Came back to Sunderland. He was sort of the third striker there. Quinn and Phillips were the starting two. Dicchio would be the the rotation option. Good in the air, good hold-up play, good all-round striker. Jody Craddock, ever-reliable centre-back. Paul Thirlwell, good, no-nonsense midfielder, just kept things, a, a game manager, kept things ticking over in the middle of the park. That was a good team. And they finished seventh. They were knocked out of the FA Cup in the fourth round and knocked out of the League Cup in the third round. In year two, they repeated the trick and finished seventh again, proving that it wasn't a fluke. 
This time they finished three points ahead of Aston Villa, but missed out on Europe by four points. Chelsea finished sixth. Again, they just overperformed at different times. 24 games into that season, they were second. 24 games in. They hit the top seven in week 16. They moved to sixth. And after that, they never dropped out of the top seven. That's really impressive. They had like a stinker of a back half of the season. They went six games without a win, three, game, three wins, three, uh, three defeats, three draws. They beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. They went five more without a win, three defeats, two draws, and still finished seven. Now, for me, that speaks to the parity of the league, that we had a lot more competitive balance back then than what we have now. In that 2000-2001 season, they signed Don Hutchinson from Everton, formerly of Liverpool and West Ham. Julio Arca, one of many, many players to be tagged as the next Maradona because he was a left-footed Argentinian. Stanislav Varga and Emerson Tome, big centre-back from Chelsea. The next season, 0-1-0-2, the wheels come off. Now, transfer-wise... They sign Nicolas Medina from Argentinos Juniors. It didn't work out. He never played in the league for them. He was 19 when they signed him. He came over with a pretty big reputation. Peter Reid spoke glowingly of him. Medina just didn't get anywhere close to the first team. There were some suggestions that his lifestyle didn't really lend itself to being a professional footballer. And he ended up having very much the journeyman career. Played for 16 clubs in 19 years. Got one cap for Argentina, to be fair to him. But it was one of those call-ups where they weren't calling up any of the big names. Had a long career, didn't play a whole bunch. Had a bunch of loans where it just didn't work. Few moves permanently where it didn't work. Signing one-year contracts pretty much every year once he left Sunderland. But that was big money for them at the time. Lillian Leslandes, a French striker from Bordeaux, arrived that year. Big money, played 12 games in the league, never scored. Multiple loans later, he was offloaded for a considerable loss. Uh, David Bellion, who would go to Manchester United a couple of years later, uh, never really understood why, because he wasn't good enough for Sunderland, but he ended up at United. Uh, Bernd Haas from Grasshopper Zurich. Put it this way, he was contracted to the club for two years and spent one of them on loan and then was binned off to West Brom. They signed Jason McAteer from Blackburn Rovers. McAteer at that point was 30. He was past his best. But he was still a valuable player to them for a couple of years. The highlight of his Sunderland career is probably him mimicking the write-it-in-your-next-book thing at Roy Keane. They signed Claudio Reyna. And he would do pretty well for them, but he was very much hampered by injuries while he was there. 
and he would leave for Manchester City. Um, he signed in the January or maybe the December and he was gone 18 months later, but he was a good player. And Joachim Bjorklund, who was a tremendous centre-back, but was at the end of his career, would basically play two years for Sunderland and then three games for Wolves, and that was it. He'd had a lot of injuries. He was a really good player for Gothenburg, for Vicenza, for Rangers, for Valencia. Really good player for uh, Sweden for a long, long time, but it just didn't work at Sunderland because he couldn't stay fit enough. They moved on. Don Hutchinson at a considerable profit. Uh, West Ham bought him for the second time. Danny Dicchio moved on. The squad got weaker. Kevin Phillips, the goal started to dry up a little bit. He's gone from 30 to 11 in three years. 17th, very, very disappointing. We move into the 0203 season. They signed Stephen Wright from Liverpool, young right back, quite limited. Did okay for them for the years he was there. He was there about five years, six years maybe, but was never a, a top-level player. Uh, and they spent quite big money on them. They did sign Matt Piper, who was a good uh, good midfielder from Leicester. Young player. Never worked. Never worked out. And they they terminated this contract a couple of years later. They spent big money on Torre Andre Flo, who'd obviously been at Chelsea, gone to Rangers. They signed him to replace Niall Quinn or to be, you know, the, the successor to Quinn. And... It just it, it didn't click at all. He was 29, and for whatever reason, it just didn't work. Injuries, lack of form, the team not been very good around him, it never worked out for him. They also signed Marcus Stewart. Now, Marcus Stewart was an, inter- an interesting one. Marcus Stewart, for a number of years, playing for Huddersfield and then Ipswich, had been seen as the best striker outside the Premier League. There was David Hurst and then there was him once Hurst got his Premier League move. For years, at, at really good at Bristol, really good at Huddersfield, good for Ipswich, moved to Sunderland, didn't work out really in the Premier League. But when they dropped down, he started scoring again. Just one of those players. Too good for the championship, not quite good enough for the Premier League. I believe he now works for Yeovil. Um, but I always liked watching him play. Uh, Mark Poom arrived on, I believe, an emergency loan from Derby County because they had some injuries to their goalkeepers. They finished 20th that year. They began the year with Peter Reid in charge. Then Howard Wilkinson took over uh, when Peter Reid was sacked in October after a really poor start to the season where they won... 1-1, drew two, and lost four of their first seven. Then won again, and then went four more without a win, including two defeats. They were in the bottom three after six games. And they never got higher than 16th after that. They dropped back into the bottom three multiple times. They went in after match week 20 and never got back out of it. Howard Wilkinson's most notable contribution at that point 
was in about late February when they were nailed to the bottom of the league. He said he thought they were going to get out of it. He said, in my mind, we're already safe. This strange man. They finished the year on 19 points. Four wins, seven draws, 27 defeats. Minus 44 goal difference. Top scorer on the year in the league, Kevin Phillips. Six goals that year. Now, I liked Kevin Phillips, but I think it's fair to say that his first season in the Premier League, where he scored 30 league goals, was a fluke. He'd done brilliantly in the first division, 29 and 43, 23 and 26. Then he goes 30 and 36 in the Premier League, but then it's 14 and 34, 11 and 37, 6 in 32. He would leave at the end of this season and go to Southampton, where he scored double figures in back-to-back seasons before moving to Villa, where he scored four goals in 23. He was still lethal in the championship years later. In 08-09, he scored 14 and 36 for Birmingham. In 11-12, he scored 16 and 38 for Blackpool. But in the Premier League, he had one great season. And after that, he was mm, about average. But I did like watching him play. Great movement and a really good finisher. Part of it was the team just wasn't very good. This season particularly, they were dreadful. So Mick McCarthy takes over. He's not long left the Irish job. And they're going down. So they finished third in the 03-04 championship season. There's a lot of belt tightening going on. They're selling whatever players they can, having spent fairly heavily, as we've been through, in their championship, in their Premier League years. Um, it's all free signings that arrive in. They finished third. In the championship, they lose in the semi-final of the playoffs. They did also get to the semi-finals of the FA Cup that year, though, and lost 1-0 to Millwall. So, you know, Millwall were a championship team as well. A championship, a championship team that were not as good as Sunderland, but wasn't to be. Like I said, they got to the semi-final of the playoffs. They lost to Crystal Palace uh, on penalties. And in 04-05, as they had the previous year, the pre- sorry, the previous time they'd been, been down when they failed in the, the playoffs, they won the championship in 04-05. So the third time winning the championship in a 10-year spell, that's pretty rare. Uh, Marcus Stewart, top scorer, they spent a little bit of money, but again, they were mostly relying on free signings and a couple of loans that they brought in. Um, a lot of big money players been let go. Like Medina's let go that summer on a free. Bjorkland let go on a free. McAteer let go on a free. John Oster let go. Up into the Premier League, 05-06 season. Mick McCarthy's in charge. And it's, it's an absolute disaster. It's an unmitigated disaster. They signed John Steed, young striker who was fairly highly regarded. He'd been at Huddersfield, come through there. He w- would go on to Blackburn, spend a year there, and then Sunderland signed him. It didn't work at all. He scored two goals in 35 league games, was loaned out the next season, and then 
sold to Sheffield United. Uh, he is now the assistant coach at Barnsley, which I was not aware of. They signed Kelvin Davis. He was a very highly regarded uh, goalkeeper at the time who had had a pretty good career, had been very good for Wimbledon. Moved to Sunderland again. It didn't really work. He'd go on and have a long spell with Southampton. I think he spent 10 years there. They signed Anthony Latalak on a season-long loan from Liverpool, brought in Alan Stubbs as a veteran presence at the back, signed Rory Delap from Southampton. This is pre-Stoke Rory Delap. They finished 20th again. This time, they managed only 15 points. They lost their first five games. They got out of the bottom three for one week of the entire season. Match week eight, having lost five in a row, drawn with West Brom, beat Middlesbrough, drawn with West Ham, they crept up to 17th. They lost to Manchester United the following week, went to 19th. Then they lost to Newcastle, then they lost to Portsmouth, and they hit the bottom, 20th, in match week 11, and they never budged from the bottom of the table again. They won three games all season. They drew six games, and they finished with 15 points. And at the time, that was the worst Premier League season that anybody had ever had. It was absolutely Horrific how bad they were. Absolutely horrific. McCarthy was sacked in February. Kevin Ball took over as a caretaker. Niall Quinn then sort of appointed himself for a brief spell before they brought in Roy Keane the following summer. 06-07 in the championship again. And in Keane's first season, they win the championship. He was allowed to spend a decent amount of money, brought in players like Dwight York, Graham Kavanagh, Stanislav Varga, Ross Wallace, David Connolly, Carlos Edwards, Anthony Stokes. He was a fun player to watch. Uh, Didn't have the career he should have had. But they won the championship again and bounced back up into the Premier League under Roy Keane. And this was to be their longest spell in the championship, in the Premier League, excuse me. This was their longest spell. 07-08, 07-08, they finished 15th under Keane. Survival was the only thing they cared about. Kenwin Jones was the top scorer with seven goals. He'd been brought in as a pretty big money signing at six million. Their biggest money signing was Craig Gordon, an outstanding keeper from Hearts, who's now back at Hearts. Um, having spent five years at Sunderland and then six years at, at Celtic. Um, great goalkeeper but couldn't stay fit signed Greg Halford he was really highly regarded I think he'd come through at Colchester gone to Reading it didn't work went to Sunderland it didn't work had a long career but didn't quite click at the Premier League level signed Michael Chopra from Cardiff he was another one that was highly regarded brought in Kieran Richardson Paul McShane Danny Higginbottom Phil Bardsley, Andy Reid from Charlton moved out some of the older players. 
Keane was ruthless though. Like he'd sign players and then bin them off six months later. But they finished in 15th in that first season, 07, 08. 08, 09, they finish in 16th position. Keane left in December, the 4th of December. They were in the bottom three and the decision was made to part ways. They ended up staying up not comfortably, in fairness, two points ahead of Newcastle, who got relegated that year. But I always felt like Keane left too early. I always felt like there was... He just needed to take a step back and reassess things. I think he has a, he has a different managerial career if he doesn't leave when he does there. Anyway, uh, Ricky Spragia, Spragia, he takes over and he sees them to the end of the season. Then Steve Bruce takes over, uh, Monday's guest. If you haven't heard Monday's pod, I had about a 20-minute chat with Steve Bruce. Um, and the money starts to fly around again. They bring in Lee Catermole for $6 million, Laurie Canna from Marseille for $5 million. The feeling that didn't last long. Yeah, one season. He went to Galatasaray. Spent big money on Darren Bent. They signed Fraser Campbell, who was quite highly regarded at Manchester United. They signed John Mensah and Michael Turner, who was a very Steve Bruce-esque centre-back and was very good for them, to be fair, having been really good for Hull for a number of years. They finish in 13th. It's their best performance in the league since those back-to-back seventh-place finishes. The next season under Bruce, they finish 10th and continue to get better. Again, there's some spending done. Asamoah Gian is the, the big money buy, but they also brought in Stefan Sessignon, who is a really exciting player. Simon Mignolet arrived that summer as well. Two million pounds. They would make a decent profit the year they sold him. They finish in 10th. We move on. 11-12, Bruce leaves in November. And he's replaced by Martin O'Neill. So they've got, gone and gotten themselves a very highly regarded manager at this point. Uh, they sign Ahmed El Mohamedi, Connor Wickham, massive money. We'll come back to him. Craig Gardner, his brother was a pro as well. Uh, Craig Gardner was a good midfielder, had come through at Villa, then made a strange move when he went to Birmingham, which just didn't happen all that often. Went to Sunderland, and to be fair, was was pretty good for Sunderland. Um, Gary Gardner is uh, is the brother of Craig. Gary played for Villa and Birmingham as well. There can't be too many sets of brothers. Uh, he's still at Birmingham, which I wasn't aware of. Can't be too many sets of brothers that have played for both Villa and Birmingham. Um, Wayne Bridge arrived in a season-long loan. Nicholas Bentner arrived in a season-long loan. They brought in Wes Brown. They brought in John O'Shea. Now, the interesting one here is Connor Wickham. So Connor Wickham broke through at Ipswich, and the hype around Connor Wickham at Ipswich was very, very similar to the hype around Nathan uh, Nathan Nathan Ferguson. That's the right back at Crystal Palace. Evan Ferguson. Similar type of build, similar type of game, huge potential, huge potential. Sunderland paid twelve million for him. And it just never worked. It just never worked. He could not stay fit. 
Then when he finally did stay fit, he just couldn't score the goals. He had one really good season for them, 13-14, he got seven in 18, which is not really, really good, but compared to the other seasons, it's it's a really good return. Um, his career never came close to what it was expected to be. Never came close. He's only 30, and he has no club this year. He played the back half of last season for Cardiff. They released him at the end of the year. Before that, he played six months with Forest Green Rovers, and they'd let him go. Before that, he spent six months with MK Dons. These are short-term contracts. And he's just getting let go, let go, let go. Same thing at Preston. They released him. He had spent six years with Crystal Palace. In that entire six-year span, he played 50 games. He scored 11 goals, six of them, and 24 of the appearances were in year one. So five years, he's played 26 games, scored five goals. Such a shame. Huge hopes for him. Just didn't work. Uh, 12-13. Did I mention they finished 13th in 11-12? I think I did. 12-13, Martin O'Neill takes over. Oh, sorry, Martin O'Neill leaves uh, in the March of that season as they look like they're headed for potential relegation again. They manage to stay up three points clear of Wigan. Paolo De Canio takes over. And by all accounts, it was just an absolute catastrophe with him behind the scenes. Just so angry with everybody and unable to communicate with the squad. He managed 13 games for them in total. Won three, drew three and lost seven. Now, look, at the end of the 12-13 season when he came in, he did manage to keep them up. But I think... Largely in, in in largely because they'd already done most of the work. Like they were eleventh in January and they just collapsed. They won two games from January or from February on. I think they they stayed up because Wigan were so inept, more so than their own good performances. Their own they had no good performances, they were awful. Wigan were so focused on winning the FA Cup that year that it, it killed them in the league. 13-14 um, then. De Canio is sacked in September. 13 games in, like I said, to his managerial career at Sunderland. He'd been at Swindon beforehand. But 13 games in at Sunderland. That made him the shortest tenured Sunderland manager ever. <clears throat> Kevin Ball was the caretaker for a couple of weeks. And then Gus Poyet took over. Um, they brought in Josie Altador. They brought in uh, Emmanuel Giaccarini, uh Karis Mavrius, don't remember him at all. Signed Fabio Barini on loan from Liverpool. Andrea De Senna, former Liverpool, in on loan from Napoli. Yeah, not great. Not great at all. Uh, Poya took over, but they finished 14th. It was a decent outcome for the season. The next year, 14-15, they signed... Jack Rodwell from Man City for an undisclosed fee on huge wages. They signed Patrick Van Arnhold from Chelsea's Academy. 
They signed Will Buckley and they signed Jermaine Defoe in the January. They also loaned in Sebastian Cuates, Ricky Alvarez, and Santiago Virgini. Um, they finished 16th, but Poye was removed in the March and replaced by Dick Advocat. So we're in a, a run here where they've where they're changing manager every single season, which is never a good sign. Like Steve Bruce leaves. Sorry, Steve Bruce takes over at the start of 0910. He does two seasons. He sacked partway into the third season. Then we've got one, two, three, four seasons in a row where they change manager. Then it became five seasons in a row the next year. Advocate removed in October, replaced by Big Sam. And for all the talk of Big Sam as a relegation expert, he took over very early in the season in October with plenty of runway ahead of him, and he barely kept them up. Now, they had a good back half of the season, to their credit, but they finished 17, stayed up by two points. Again, for second time, ahead of Newcastle. It's not like Big Sam turned things around massively there. And he spent a decent amount of money. Now, in the summer, they'd signed Coates on a free. They'd signed Jermaine Lenz, Eunice Kabul, Barini. In the January, Big Sam signed Wabi Kazri for for 9 million and Lamine Kone for 5 million. That's 14 million back then was a lot of money for Sunderland. Transfers then were different to transfers now. 1617, David Moyes takes over. Big Sam took the England job, you'll remember. Moyes takes over. It's the first season since Steve Bruce's second season that they don't change manager and they are relegated. They finish bottom of the Premier League, 24 points, 16 points from safety. Transfers. Happy Jidabodji, not very good. Paddy McNair and Donald Love, not very good. Didier and Dong, a player they would actually release from his contract two years later. Darren Gibson and Brian Oviedo, neither of them did great. And that started the downfall of Sunderland, which had been coming for a while. They were treading water for too long. Too many seasons of unrest and upheaval. They go down at the end of the 16-17 season and we've not seen them back in the Premier League since. In fact, in the what is now seven seasons in the interim, they spent four of them in League One. After being relegated bottom of the Premier League, they were relegated bottom of the championship, which is a staggering thing to do. Now, in their four years in League One, they did finish in the playoffs in three of the four years. But it took them until that fourth year to get themselves up. And they beat Wickham Wanderers, which is what the latest season of 
this Sunderland Till I Die covers. I'm not sure why it's taken so long to come out, but that's what it covers. It covers that season. Last year in the championship, they did finish sixth, but they had upheaval when the manager who'd gotten them up left on the eve of the season, which was replaced by Tony Mowbray. Mowbray did a really good job there. I don't know why they decided to let him go. He's obviously taken the Birmingham job and has now had to take a leave of absence to deal with an illness. Fingers crossed, Tony Mowbray is okay. Uh, this season, at the moment, not going great. They're 10th. Michael Beale has been sacked, breaking Paolo Di Canio's record for the least games managed at Sunderland, 12. And that's where they sit. They've been a very interesting team over the past 20 years. They've played a very important part in Premier League history. You know, they've spent a lot of seasons in the Premier League. Won the first time around, four the second time around, won the third time around, but then the long run where they spend 10 years in the division. So 15 years, half, just over, well, just under half the Premier League's history. Sunderland have been involved. Now, they've made no real mark on the division. The two seventh place finishes under Peter Reid are the best they've managed. They're the only times, uh, along with the 10-11 season under Steve Bruce, that they've managed to finish in the top half. Four relegations from the division. I look forward to seeing them again. I do. They've been an important club over their history. They have spent 87 years in the top flight of English football. 32 in the second division and five in the third division. And four of those five seasons in the third division have come recently. So the idea that some people dismiss Sunderland as a big club is foolish. Sunderland are a big club. They've played an important role in the history of English football. They've been in the top flight for most of their history. And it would be great to see them back in the top flight. This is a club that have six top flight league titles to their name. That's not nothing. I know they're a long time ago. 1891-92, 1892-93, 1894 95 1901-02, 1912-13, and 1935-36. I know it's an awful long time ago, but they're not to be dismissed. They are real honours that their club won. Real honours. They've won the second division, what we now call the championship, on five different occasions. They've won the third division once. They've won the FA Cup twice, 1937 and 1973. They've never won the League Cup. They won the EFL Trophy in 2021. But the last major honour is the FA Cup in 1973, where they played Leeds United in the final, and through an Ian Porterfield goal in the 32nd minute, took home the cup. 
that is against the greatest Leeds team that's ever been. A team that had Billy Bremner, Norman Hunter, Peter Lorimer, Alan Clark, Mick Jones, Johnny Giles, Eddie Gray, managed by Don Revy. It is the greatest Leeds team of all time. It is a Leeds team that had won the league title a couple of years previously, would win the league title the following year, had won the FA Cup the year before. They won the League Cup a couple of years before. They won two Intercity Fairs Cups around that time. It is the best Leeds team ever. And Sunderland beat them in a cup final in front of 100,000 people at the Old Wembley. They're an important club. They belong in the top flight. And hopefully they get their act together soon and we get them back in the top flight. I'll be back after the break. Right, welcome back. So, uh, one game tonight in the Premier League. It is Liverpool at home to Luton. Liverpool have a lot of injuries, but they should still get the job done. Uh, Jim Ratcliffe has completed his purchase of part of Manchester United. Uh, Commiserations to all those United fans who learned Arabic and put guitar flags in their bios. Um, and commiserations because your new part owner is Jim Ratcliffe, who is not going to spend the type of money you think he is buying new players. It's already been reported that United are facing a summer where they will have to sell in order to buy. And believe me, they don't have a lot of sellable assets. Yes, they have Jaden Sancho, Anthony, Mason Greenwood. Nobody's paying big money for those players. Um, Ratcliffe has said he wants to build a new stadium at Manchester United. Would that mean moving away from the site of Old Trafford? Would it mean knocking Old Trafford and potentially ground sharing somewhere for a couple of years and rebuilding on the same site? Could they potentially build next to the old stadium where there is some land available? It's going to be very expensive to do any of those things. But this is what he wants to do. So let's wait and see if it happens. Let's just do the gossip and be done for today. Uh, Liverpool are interested in Mark Wehi. I don't believe that story. It's Matt Lowe as well, so probably nonsense. Paris Saint-Germain are targeting Victor Osman, Marcus Rashford and Gavi this summer. Rashford has long been admired by PSG. Rashford would make sense to replace Mbappe if Rashford goes there and clicks. That front three of Dembele, Colomani and him could be very, very good. Bayer Leverkusen director of sports Simon Rolfs says he is sure that the manager of his club, which is Xabi Alonso, will stay at the club this summer despite interest from Liverpool and Bayern. Manchester United and Liverpool are among a host of clubs in the Premier League, who are interested in Atalanta defensive midfielder Ederson. Arsenal, Newcastle and Tottenham also monitoring Brazilian. Now, why would Arsenal be monitoring a defensive midfielder when they've got the best one in the world? Strange that, isn't it? Juventus also like Ederson, but the Serie A giants have decided to make 10 coup miners their priority. That would not be a good signing. Uh, United are interested in Gleison Bremer, who is valued at sixty million. Gleison Bremer next to the gnome could be the most hilarious centre back pairing of all time. Um, Tony Khan says the club will consider offers that make sense for Joao Polinia this summer. 
Barcelona will be forced several, to sell several players in a bid to reduce their salary bill by 57 million. Well, I'm sure there's a club somewhere that will give you silly money for Frankie de Jong, which will help do that. Um, maybe stop signing, you know, lads in their 30s on big contracts. That might help. Manchester United are considering reigniting their interest in Frankie de Jong and Harry Kane. Uh, this is from Football Transfers. It's an exclusive by Jack Talbot, who has no idea what's going on anywhere. De Jong has rejected reports he could leave Barcelona and says he's angry at the false rumours. Okay. Sheffield Wednesday, Bolton and Peterborough are all exploring a move for Ravel Morrison, who's a free agent after leaving MLS side DC United. I assume his plan was to join Birmingham in January with Rooney, but then obviously Rooney got sacked. Uh, Aston Villa are preparing to open the bidding for Red Bull Salzburg midfielder Oscar Glauch. Uh, with an offer of €20 million, Euro, but the 19-year-old Israeli has also been tracked by Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, Newcastle and Barcelona. That is credited to Ekram Connor, who it's been proven is not actually a real person. So there we go. Right, folks, I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.